Welcome to Webinaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Webinaki Windows is being brought to you by WERU in East Orland, Maine, in partnership with WMPG Portland, Maine. This is the sixth show in our ICE series. And in order to understand the series, I urge you to listen to the first show uh, found online in public archives of WERU.org called Webinaki Windows, dated 22823. Uh, the series is dedicated to the Webinaki people in Maine to help them understand the history of Webinaki state relations. And it is my intention to read every word of the three transcripts on the air and then discuss the implications. Uh, the 1942 transcripts reveal the dialogue between the Legislative Research Committee uh, and the witnesses they call before them to discuss the Indian problem and the final solution. This is the third transcript. Uh, and uh, it's the transcript where uh, Ralph Proctor, the, uh, the researcher that they assigned to do the report, his report known as the Proctor Report, where he testifies before the committee. Our guests today include my co-authors of One Nation Under Fraud, or Remonstrance, Judge Eric Menert, Attorney Joseph Gauss, as well as Professor Harold Prince. Uh, Eric Menert is Chief Judge of the Penobscot Nation Tribal Court. Attorney Joseph Gauss is a legal researcher and writing specialist. Professor Harold Prince is a native of the Netherlands. He is a distinguished professor of anthropology and an emeritus at the University of Kansas. Uh, welcome to the show, everyone. Thank you. So we'll begin by reading part two of the third and final transcript, and we'll discuss it on the other side. So today, uh, Eric will, will read uh, Proctor. He read Proctor on the last show. So we'll continue where we left off for the last show. Uh, so Eric, you can start. So this is a continuation of Ralph Proctor's testimony. There has also been a policy on the part of the state on the basis of tradition to continue on the roles of the tribe, children of mixed marriages, and also illegitimate children of Indian women who are members of the tribe. There are 17 known illegitimate children in the Passamaquoddy tribe and estimate an equal number in the Penobscots. The next is a summary of intermarriage. In the Penobscots, there are a total of 36 Indian women who have married white men and 19 Indian men that have married white women and six Indian women who married Canadian Indians. And there are 125 children from these intermarriages. In the Passamaquoddy tribe, there are 14 Indian women who have married white men, four Indian men who have married white women, and one Indian woman who married a Canadian Indian, and there are 67 children. In both tribes, there would be a total of 80 intermarriages among those living at the present time, with 192 children by intermarriage. It is quite a racket among certain type of white men to go up there and marry an Indian woman and have a lot of children. I believe one of them has 12 and gets a bounty for each one and for his wife, enough so that he doesn't have to do much work. Now, if you add to, into that the estimate of 35 illegitimates, which are probably of mixed blood, it gives you a total of 227 children of mixed blood classified as Indians. And these 227 children, of course, 
under the present laws, even though they are of mixed blood, they are classified as Indians and members of the tribe, and they can continue to breed and produce Indians with the tribal privileges. I've done a very poor job, I think, on the graphs and trying to project that into the future. I have taken 50 Indian women who married white men, 25 white men who married Indian women, and 17 that married Canadian Indians, 192 children, 35 illegitimates, and that would make this people in this line here, indicating on the graph, if they were full blood to start with, would make the children of intermarriages half-blood Indians a total of 192 plus 35 or 227. Now, the next generation coming along, you can multiply that by three quite easily with the ratio of family they have, and you get to 227 times three, and the next group, the quarter bloods, so many married, again, white man, men, that would give you, in the next generation, 681 quarter blood Indians. If you want a generation further than that and brought it down to one-eighth blood, assuming they continue to intermarry and multiply by three to a family, that would bring you 2,043 right here, right there, and the fourth generation would be one-eighth Indian blood. But still, according to the law at the present, they would be classified as Indians, even if they have only one-eighth Indian blood, and they would have all the privileges that the Indians on the reservation have. Mr. Hildreth, and that was a projection of three generations? Mr. Proctor, three generations beyond the present. Now, the next item I have is a legal status of the Indians. The Indian laws of the state of Maine were revised and included in the Acts and Resolves in 1933, Chapter 1, Sections 241 through 299. Amendments from 1933 through 1941 affecting these statutes have been voted in the 1933 volume here. In other words, the Indian laws in this volume are right up to date with all the corrections and amendments that have been made. And also in this volume has been included a copy of some Indian treaties, this pamphlet that I think you have seen before, and a very interesting history of the Penobscot tribes by Florence Shea, who's one of the Indians living on the Old Town Reservation. And there are some things in there that are of particular interest as expressing her point of view as to what the state has not done for the Indians. Question of whether or not the Indian has a legal right to vote is a pertinent one. The Constitution of the state of Maine excludes Indians not taxed, but by the revised statutes of 1930, Chapter 13, Section 6, the polls and estates of Indians are exempt from taxation. Court opinions seem to apply that if the Indians are taxed, they may be voters. By the Act of June 2, 1924, Congress conferred citizenship upon all Indians born in the United States. The Attorney General refuses to give any opinion in the matter, and a legislative order on March 14, 1941, requesting an advisory opinion, received an indefinite reply from the Supreme Court. They passed the buck, too. Also attempting to define an Indian is difficult. Up to 1939, Maine Indian law permitted adoption or membership acquired by marriage to, quote, such persons as are in whole or in part of Indian blood, close quote. In 1939, this was amended to limit adoption to persons of one quarter Indian blood and who are husband, wife, or child of a member of the tribe. That was putting on some limitation. Chapter 162 of the 
1933, in an act defining the pauper status of Indians, it was stated, quote, a person known to have Indian blood shall be deemed to be an Indian, close quotes. So any complications arose under this act, so many complications arose under this act that it was necessary to repeal it in 1935. So apparently the legal definition in the state of Maine as to who is and who is not an Indian is this, one quarter Indian blood. But that applies only to the adoption of Indians within the tribe. The Indian Commissioner reports of 1890, close paren, quote, Indian includes descendants of Indians who have an admixture of white or Negro blood, provided they retain their distinctive character as members of the tribe from which they trace descent, close quotes. The federal government apparently goes on the basis that an Indian is anybody who has any Indian blood. Now, as to the progress of the Indians. At Old Town Island, 584 Penobscots, less 60, were living listed as list, living, excuse me, who were listed as quote off reservation close quotes, in January 1942 are living. A few of this number have camps on the on an adjacent island, but the great number are located on the end of Old Town Island, adjacent to the village of Old Town. Old Town Island contains 293 acres. Orson Island, where the Indian public farm was located in 1835 through 62, has 1,438 acres, but it is used now only as a woodlot. Yet the Indian settlements are bunched closely on not more than one quarter of the island. There is apparently much unoccupied and unassigned land a good portion of it tillable, which is not used. A few homes have small garden plots, but on the whole, these are untended. The houses are in bad repair, dirty, and no attempt has been made even to pull the three-foot weeds in the front yard. The whole impression one gets is of slackness, lack of pride, or initiative. The settlement has paved roads, friend P period, W period, A period, city water and lights, sewage system, and some sidewalks and streetlights. The two-room schoolhouse is in fair condition. The school is taught by three Sisters of Mercy attached to the Catholic Church and maintained by the state. The school is graded up to the eighth grade, and after finishing there, students may attend in Old Town. Elementary students also have the privilege of attending Old Town Elementary Schools, and children of the Small Baptist Group do so. At the present, there are about 53 attending elementary and high school in Old Town. The tribe has its own government, electing a governor, lieutenant governor, and a representative to the legislature. The Indian municipality has a small amount of funds available from ferry tolls and dog licenses. The Indian agent visits the island every two weeks. There is an assistant agent, which office is at present vacant, and an Indian supervisor, who combines several jobs as janitor, agricultural supervisor, and so forth. The living Indians living there seem satisfied with their treatment, with the exception of a small group, about 15%, who express themselves, as Ms. Florence Shea has in her hit, quote, History of the Penobscot Tribe of Indians, close quote, quote, 
The foregoing treaties are merely useless pieces of paper today as all promises have been broken, dividends are not paid, and all obligations stipulated in them are cast aside, close quote, forgetting that the terms of the treaty are antiquated and that the present appropriation exceeds many times what it would cost to meet the terms of the treaty literally. Among the Passamaquoddy reservations, Pleasant Point in Perry, 100 acres, is the most pleasing. Here are found good roads, artesian wells with five faucet, quote, quote, faucet houses, close quote, but no sewage system. Most of the houses are in good repair, paren, some even have cellars, close paren, and the members of the tribe apparently possess much more initiative and energy than those found in any other reservation. There is a three-room school taught by Catholic sisters. High school students are transported by bus to Eastport. According to the 1942 census, 368 Indians reside there. At Princeton and Peter Dana's point, 188 others live. Conditions at Princeton, where the Indians live along the lakefront, are quite similar to Pleasant Point. The Indian elementary school there is run by the Department of Education and taught by a lay teacher. Peter, Dana, Peter Dana's Point settlement is in the woods, remote from any other settlement, and living conditions there are by far the poorest of any Indian settlement. A fairly good road, P, again, paren, P period, W period, A period, close paren, runs in there. There are no electrical lights beyond the church and school, which are served by a home generation generating plant. Water is obtained from two rock wells, a general dirty appearance, even worse than in Old Town, impresses one here. The Indians are shiftless, take no care of their houses or land, and little of themselves. There is no sewage system. That describes the reservation. Chairman Dow, how many are at Peter, Peter Dana's point? Mr. Proctor, about 80. The economic situation. Attempts dating back to 1824 have been constantly made to instruct the Indians in agriculture. Bounties on agricultural products have been paid since 1838. At present, seed, fertilizer, and even plowing services are furnished them. Agricultural superintendents have been provided, yet the results on the quantity are poor. Gardens are not taken care of, available land is not used, no grazing lands are opened or requested. Apparently, the Indian is not constitutionally interested in farming. A very few baskets were on display at the stores on the reservation. Only at Old Town were any evidences of this handiwork actually going on, and three women were working there. Prior to this year, a sizable number of Indians used to go to summer places to attempt to sell baskets. The Indian agent states that most of these capable of working, most of those capable of working are now doing so. Some are at Bath in Portland, some work at Old Town, others on miscellaneous jobs. In the time of prosperity, many leave the reservation but return when work becomes more difficult to obtain. Under WPA, considerable employment was created for them on the reservations. Timbering operations offer some jobs, but in all of this work, the Indian is apt to work until he gets his first pay and then quit until his money is gone again. The same characteristic is evidenced by their failure to provide themselves with a wood supply for the winter when the wood is free for the cutting and will be transported to their door by truck from the place where they cut it. Actually, 
They wait until the wood is immediately necessary and then cut a couple days supply of green wood at a time. Whether this attitude is wholly or in part Indian nature or whether it has been created by the paternalistic attitude of the state in providing for them is a matter for conjecture. Possibly both factors have contributed in part. In the absence of any definite regular opportunity for work on or near the reservation, it is difficult to see how their economic condition can be improved. I will skip briefly over health because there are not any objective data in regard to the health of Indians. But I talked with five different doctors in Old Town, in Callis, and Princeton, who have charge of Indian health. And they feel the Indians are just as healthy as anybody else, but that there was a time, 10 or 15 years ago, when they were more subject to, to tuberculosis and syphilis than any in the general population. But at the present time, it is pretty well under control and cared for in about the only ones who are not in reasonably good health are the elder people for whom there are arrested cases. That is the general consensus of opinion among all of these doctors. And the Department of Health and Welfare has done a lot for the health of the Indian by providing this medical care and following it up. They have taken tonsils out of pretty nearly 30 school children this summer. Education, I think I've covered most of that. The Catholic schools go back to the early days of the history of the reservations when the Catholic Church came in for missionary work and stayed there. They seem to run the schools very capably and are doing a good job there in that respect. At Old Town, of course, the elementary school students may go to Old Town elementary schools, but in the other reservations, they go to the schools on the reservation. Most of them do at Old Town by choice. In 1926, the State Commissioner of Education reported, quote, the Indian schools were placed by the last legislature under the supervision of the school superintendent in the school union in which their territory is located. And the Eastport superintendent reported for training in industrial arts, the need for training in industrial arts grows greater each year. Two of our boys have just been transferred to a reservation where they can have vocational training. The introduction of these courses into the schools would do more it seems to me, than any other thing for the children of Pleasant Point." Close quote. Schools give a good education and academic work as far as they are interested or capable of doing, doing, going, but they give them nothing which will train them for following a vocation. Now, I have a great deal more of detail under all these items, but I do not want it to go into it unless you want it. If you want any of it, I will be glad to give it to you now or at any other time. And I have a summary, which is in the form of questions, because my original idea in this thing was I was just a fact finder and you people were going to determine policy and so forth. So I put these questions in for your consideration of you want to, if you want to use them. Mr. Weber, those questions are not awfully long and I do not think we need them on the record but just take a minute and read those questions through, and then they go off the record for discussion. Mr. Libby, to your knowledge, how many Indians have gone from the tribes into the army? Mr. Proctor, I have got a list here. For one tribe that record is available, there are 17 from the Passamaquoddy tribe who were in the service as of May 30th. Penobscot tribe, I haven't got the figures. Chairman Dow. 
how did those get in the services as volunteers? Proctor, no. Most of them were drafted. Mr. Libby, then it is a fact they can draft the Indians for service? Chairman Dow, yes, the federal government recognizes them as citizens. Proctor, according to the federal government, I think you would have a job to stop them voting in state elections if they paid a poll tax. Mr. Weber, have you any thoughts before we leave on what ought to go into this bill that was presented to us? Mr. Proctor, well, personally, I feel thoroughly in accord with the policy of limiting the responsibility to the Indian tribes. It would seem to me the first step would be to get some step which would define an Indian and limit the growth of these tribes. You close the door to an Indian woman marrying a white man and still remember, uh, still remain as a member of a tribe. Mr. Weber, would you also close the door to marrying Canadian Indians? Mr. Proctor, surely. Mr. Weber, what are you going to do about this semi-property right that they held? Mr. Proctor, they really hold a property right which is confined, confirmed to them by the legislature, but which they cannot realize in any way. That is, they can transfer the property from one person to another, but they cannot liquidate it. Of course, if you say an Indian woman loses her membership in the tribe when she marries a white man and has got to get off the reservation, and if she owns property under this limited title she has, she, of course, could transfer that gratis to somebody else, but couldn't realize on it herself. Chairman Dow, you say they are not worth anything. You could have the state buy it and tear down the buildings and keep somebody else from living there. Mr. Weber, have the state tax assessor determine the value. Chairman Dow, compensation for property which she is deprived of. Mr. Proctor, you might gradually buy back the reservation. And that's the end of the transcript. <clears throat> so is there anyone who's just dying to comment on this first? <laughs> uh, but I, I do, before we comment, I do want to go back to, there was a page where they talk about, talking about the, the court of blood and eighth and eighth blood status the they use the term 2040 that term is a year the year 2040 from me looking at this because they talk about going down to th to four generations and if this is 1942 then he's projecting how many indians will be there who are quarter blood uh, by 20, I think it was 2043. Uh, and oh, 2043 fourth generation would be one eighth and still have all the privileges. Now this is if they don't do anything to stop this. So that's, that's a, a blatant uh, genocidal plan. So, okay. Um, Joe, you weren't here last week so I'm, i'll let you start all right thank you donna yeah i to your comment i mean i think when you look at the definition of genocide as it's been defined by the united nations uh accords and and such that fits right in um you know certainly targeting the youth of a population as we've seen 
is a and you know in a very nefarious way it's quote like a tried and true um, aspect of those types of policies and here it seems to me that um you know even if even if you're reading this you know just for the words on the page and not thinking about an outside source like a definition of genocide you can clearly see that the state is very concerned at the time of this testimony with monitoring and then limiting we hear from proctor at the end he's like you could buy back the reservation you could limit the amount of people in the tribe this is a conversation being had by elected officials of the state of maine in which they're talking about their concerns controlling the size of the tribes and talking about ways to go about doing that um i think it's it's remarkable not in a good way it's, it's remarkable that this record exists and shows so clearly and blatantly the policies that the state was trying to pursue at the time. Yeah, and jumping right on that, Joe, I agree with you 100% when you're talking about this part, um, when they're talking about the liquidation of property, they're really talking about uh, not only the liquidation of property, but the limitation of tribal members in the attempt to liquidate the property. And that is a, uh, the textbook definition of genocide. They are saying, how can we... Uh, how can we make it so that this tribe no longer exists? I was particularly struck back by the language of uh, Proctor at the end that said, you know, you might gradually be able to buy back the reservation. Um, first off, they weren't buying back the reservation. That land was always tribal members and always part of tribal lands. Um, but second off, it is an attempt to eradicate the tribe's uh, very existence in the state. Harold? Yeah, I totally agree. I would actually go a step, step further, uh, namely not just liquidating the land, but also the people. If you look at the combination uh, of um, Roman Catholic, most uh, Penobscot were, and Passapoti were Roman Catholic at the time. And if you look at the prohibition against cousin marriage, uh, which was considered to, to be incest, incest, and you have a small community of, let's say, in the case of the Penobscot, about 400, 500 people max, where you had high mortality rates that meant that many uh, Penobscot uh, remarried um, after having had children. So many families were actually blended families in the sense that uh, a widow may marry a widower and both may have had children and these children then become part of the same household. But if you begin to calculate in, um, and the st statistician could do an interesting job on this in terms of how many people would be cousin marriages if they were allowed to have cousin marriages, but that was prohibited by the Roman Catholic Church. So um, that would be considered to be incest. Now, the issue of incest uh, looms over this entire piece as well, though it doesn't really explicitly get into it. But since there are these concerns about incest, which is for, first and foremost in the minds of um, the dominant society, America, the uh, United States of America, because that's linked to eugenics. The idea about incest leads to inbreeding, inbreeding leads to feeble minds. And then you come back to the so-called morons with which indigenous peoples are lumped. And so what you get here is an interesting triad of uh, historically anti-miscegenation laws in Maine, uh, that existed throughout the 19th century that Maine inherited from the state of Massachusetts, where you had anti-miscegenation laws on the books um, in 1820. That was not repealed, and it was reinforced numerous times in the legislature. Um, 
So a number of um, Indian white uh, marriages in the 19th century were annulled as a result, but that raised concerns among the uh, Catholics that if you now have a combination of both a prohibition of marriage with um, with uh, non-Indians, both blacks, actually not blacks, it's really, uh, but primarily whites, and the prohibition of marriage um, across the uh, international boundary with what is now called Canada, where all the other Wabanaki communities are, what you then have is a pool of people that you can marry from, which is extremely limited. So by creating all these prohibitions um, by um, international marriage, right, Canadian Indians out, but by that definition, most of the Penobscot at that time would have had illegitimate ancestry in terms of marriages, because if you just look at the Shea family, for example, of um, of um, uh, Charles Shea, his great-grandmother was a Huron from uh, Quebec. His great-grandfather was a Canadian Indian from somewhere. We do not know exactly which uh, tribe, which possibly Abenaki. Um, and then you look at uh, Florence's uh, mother, uh, 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 that too is uh, from uh, from far away. So you get incredible numbers of people who would be considered to be under this kind of legislation that they are attempting uh, would all be factored out. And as a result, you have such a limited pool left uh, that you can perhaps do it with dog breeding, but you can't do it with humans designating who will be the father and who will be the mother because ultimately you don't just run out of people. But they are doing the opposite, right, by saying if you don't put constraints on it, you get an ad infinitum ex expansion of the tribe to one-eighth blood, and that means higher cost for the, for, the, for the state. And so here's an interesting tension between the two arguments. One is unlimited expansion that the United States itself is, of course, engaged in. No one is uh, telling the United States about all these. Look at uh, Donald Trump, uh, his children. You know, his three children are half Czechs. Right? Can you imagine all former Eastern Europe? Uh, so this this reality reality of the Americas as an immigrant nation that's prohibited for the the Penobscot in this case and the Passamaquoddy. Yeah, you know, Harold, when you're talking about that, I I started to watch a TV series last night called uh, the Underground Railroad, and uh, the, the the slave owners, the masters, actually had the slaves breed and called the, you know, like uh, the uh, the reference here said they, they can continue to breed and produce Indians with tribal privileges. The same kind of talk that slave owners had in the South uh, towards the, uh, towards the, the, the black people that uh, were, were slaves to them. So they basically had a view of the Indians and, the, you know, they viewed the, the Indians in the same way from my perspective. And the other thing is the uh, the idiot kind of thing. Uh, the Cowan transcripts mentioned the Brown Tuttle colony and compared the tribes to those uh, to that colony. And you'll find that that colony was not was indeed inbred. So they did not have a very high. Uh, view of uh, of native people, Eric. Yeah, I I am fascinated by the discussion of the Proctor report on the issue of race rather than the recognition 
of tribal sovereignty. Um, and it is quite frankly of concern to me in, in today's um, today's world because that is the argument that was being made in the affirmative action cases in front of the Supreme Court and in front of the, and most recently in the Brackeen case was, oh, ICWA is discriminatory based on race rather than a recognition that tribal sovereigns are separate as a separate nation. As a nation, they can have all kinds of different races. And I think that's what Harold was talking about. You know, the, the greatness of of uh, America has been a number of different races come into America, but in, they are Americans. If the Passamaquoddies or the Penobscot say, this is what we consider to be a member of our sovereign nation, they should be able to say that without the state of Maine saying, oh no, we're going to base it on race. Um, because there is an awful lot of eugenics in that, that, that is concerned to me. I think the other fascinating thing well, and, and part of that I, I find, I, I always have a hard time when we're talking about how these politicians are thinking because they never seem to see the other side of that. They they say, oh, we're going to, they make these, these racial distinctions and yet they don't then turn around and say, well, if, if that's a racial distinction we're making, the the uh, anti-discrimination laws ought to apply to all tribal members. They they go on and recognize, oh no, we're going to continue to say that they can't vote um, unless they pay a poll tax. Um, and, and that seems to me at odds with the 14th Amendment um, and the laws that came down after that. The other fascinating thing that I, I found in this transcript was back on page 21 when um, uh, Proctor was arguing about what Ms. Shea had had said in her history, and the language she had used was, "quote The foregoing treaties that were signed by the um, by the United States, the foregoing treaties are merely useless pieces of paper today, as all promises have been broken, dividends are not paid, and all obligations stipulated them in them are cast aside." And then he goes on to say, Proctor says, forgetting that the terms of the treaties are antiquated. Well, I find that fascinating in the sense of, are we now, is he prepared to say that the Settlement Act is antiquated? Because by terms, I would argue that it is. The Settlement Act is antiquated. And if, if they could say that the tribes treaties in 1942 were antiquated and should be abrogated. Certainly the Settlement Act, which is now over 50 years old, is antiquated, uh, especially in these times, um, and should be abrogated. Totally agree with that. Uh, now, Florence uh, Shea was Charles Shea's mother. Is that correct, Harold? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I just wanted to make that Point clear. I think Harold, uh, you want to say something about that, Harold? Yeah, uh, because she's not only the mother of Charles Shea, but um, she also, in a revised edition of the little booklet that came out in 1942, the, the first edition came out in 1933, but the revised edition came out the same year that this particular conversation is taking place in the main uh, state house. 
Um, and that's where she's talking about the injustice of the fact that four of her sons are going to be drafted or eligible for to, to be drafted. Uh, Charles is about to be drafted um, and they can't vote. So she's now basically saying that, uh, as she had mentioned uh, before, that um, uh, as a result of World War One, the so-called privilege was given to American Indians to become American citizens. So they acquired all insofar as they weren't yet citizens, they got uh, the right to vote. That was in federal law. Then she had moved during the uh, in the 1920s with her husband and her small children. She had moved to Connecticut where she could vote. And she voted all the time in Connecticut uh, in the 1920s and early 1930s. And then she comes back to the reservation in the early 1930s during the Depression when jobs are vanishing, comes back to the reservation with her children. And she's trying to vote when she's back. And that's when she suddenly discovers that she can't vote. So for her, that sense of um, a right that she had in Connecticut was denied to her in Maine. And that's an important piece for her own political awareness, because if she hadn't left Indian Island, it, that was just a state of being that she might not have questioned. So here's uh, that element. The second element about uh, Florence is that although her father died when she was only 10 years old, but her father was the famous Joseph Nicolai, who had been uh, the tribal representative to the main legislature for more terms, I think, than any other Penobscot um, uh, after or before. And Joseph Nicolai himself was the great was the grandson of uh, Lieutenant Governor John Neptune. And uh, on her father's side, um, uh, sorry, on Florence's uh, father's 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 side, uh, she was a descendant of uh, Joseph um, uh, Orono. So what you get here is a woman who is the youngest of three daughters of uh, Lizzie, who was at one point after she became a widow, considered to be the wealthiest member of, of the uh, Penobscot tribal nation. Was a very astute businesswoman. They had traveled to Baltimore, to New York, to Madison Square Garden, uh, was very sophisticated. And if you think about Florence's sister, uh, Lucy, who uh, married Bruce uh, Poulaw, uh, better known she was as Princess Watawaso, uh, she had no children, but those two sisters, more so than Emma, the oldest, but those two sisters were very, very close. And so um, Florence, while she had many, many children and therefore was less active in public affairs, she, as well as her sister-in-law, Pauline Shea, that we had talked before, Leo Shea's uh, sister, that was a formidable, um, highly informed a group of Penobscot that came from um, leadership. Um, and Leo Shea's father was a tribal representative as well, Sabata Shea. Leo was very active in Indian affairs as well. So in that household of um, the Shea's and the Nicolars, they were neighbors on Indian Island, was a tremendous amount of political discourse and knowledge. Uh, so that was not simply a Penobscot basket maker who decided to write a little book on the history of the Penobscot nation. So listen, and as I recall, and and Donna, I think you correct me on it, and, and if not Donna, certainly Harold, when did the state of Maine recognize the right for natives to vote in federal elections? Was it 1954? Uh, no, there's actually a differential between state and federal. That's a very confusing part uh, that has been right. uh, going on. So the issue is here 
that, uh, and it was very disputed among, among the Penobscot in terms of the voting rights, because even when they got the voting rights in 1954, I think it was, and Lucy Nicola is one of the first to vote, but you should, I should also emphasize, and it's mentioned in the Proctor report, that the, um, the Nicolars had become Baptists, and so they already had broken away from the stranglehold of the Catholic Church and Catholic education, which is the reason why Charles Shea went for primary school, not to the Indian school at Indian Island, but to the mainland. Um, and he was one of the few, of course, all the kids who went to high school had to go to Old Town, but it was not that many who crossed the river uh, for a primary school. But it's one reason why um, the, that Baptist very small group was at odds in certain ways with uh, on certain pieces within the tribal politics. And that gets back to the division between the new party and the old party all the way back to the 1830s. This very complicated history that I, goes way beyond uh, the, the, the discussion today. But it's kind of important to know that um, regarding the voting that you mentioned, uh, Eric, earlier, that that voting issue was a highly contentious issue also within the Passamaquoddy and the Penobscot tribe, much like later the Main Indian Land Claim Settlement Act, that was not a unanimous uh, rejection or adoption. Um, if you begin to look at the numbers, you see that with the Main Indian Land Claim Settlement Act of 1980, about one third of the Penobscot tribe voted against uh, the settlement. Um, so with the Voting Act, the concern was always that the linkage of voting and taxation happened. And so uh, while there was a pursuit of the right to vote, there was at the same time the, uh, the struggle not to become taxed by the state of Maine and be reduced as a municipality. So the whole issue underlying that voting right that looks always now as look at the backward state of Maine refusing to give voting rights to the Penobscot, if you look at the legislative record, it's actually multiple efforts by the, by the main state legislature to actually give voting rights to the Penobscot and the Passamaquoddy because that would lead to taxation and it would be leading to a normalization, in quotation marks, of the tribal status as a municipality. So that complicated issue is repeatedly misunderstood because it's so complicated and has so many internal contradictory elements that it makes it very hard to unravel and to understand really what goes on because these complicated political issues get reduced to simple narratives where you get the right versus the wrong. And that's not the case. The, the, the right has mixtures of good uh, and bad and the, the opposite mixtures of good and bad. And I've mentioned several times in earlier uh, interviews that if you lack the concept of paradox, you cannot grasp anything of this complicated Wabanaki history because it's loaded with paradoxes, which I love personally, in the sense it gets back to the Hegelian tradition of dialectics, which I um, I like, you know, this, this understanding of history as a dialectical process of contradictory forces. Uh, so with that mindset, that theoretical mindset, to begin to look at Wabanaki history, you begin to see that these linear lines are false. It's, it's a kind of a dialectics of tension between A, B, C, D, all against each other in thesis antithesis thesis, antithesis, and sometimes synthesis up or sometimes going back. So it's not always progress, right? Uh, unlike the Hegelian world uh, historical view, uh, sometimes there's regress, um, but it's a fascinating process. But the voting thing and this whole uh, thing that we are now discussing with Proctor uh, and, his, uh, and his people, uh, they are sitting around the table. 
um, you mentioned earlier uh, about uh, the, um, the genocide. And it should be important that uh, genocidal practices happen way before the adoption of the term genocide as a crime against humanity. I think it was first adopted in 1948 as a formal distinction. And so we're here with six years before, but just like you may have a definition of murder that is in a certain way, it doesn't mean there was no murder before the definition. I so, guess my, my question with it, you know, that come, it comes down to this, which is, if you have the 14th Amendment, which says that no state shall, uh, let's see, what is exactly the language in the 14th? No state shall make or enforce any law which shall bridge privileges or immunities of any citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any citizen of the rights they're under. The question is, once the United States says in 1924, Native Americans have the right to vote, when the study of Maine starts saying, well, we're going to put limitations on that. Yeah, you got the right to vote, but we're going to tax you before, and you got to accept the fact that we're going to tax you before you can exercise that right. Where does that play out in the interplay between federal law and state law and, and the federal supremacy over state law and the constitution over state law? Um, and then when you add in, and I think you're absolutely right when you talk about dialectics and challenges, what do you do with the state then saying, well, you may get to vote in federal elections, but you don't get to vote in state elections because state elections was even later, I thought. Was, was it 1967? Yeah, I believe that sounds about right. Uh, but I know, Harold, you want to say something, but but Joe, you haven't been able to get in here, so. Oh, well, thank you, Donna. No, this, <laughs> there's a lot of really rich discussion here, and I'm grateful for that. I hope that the, the listeners will take the time to pause and go back um, and kind of follow all these threads because each and every one is deserving of an hours long podcast. Um, in particular, though, I just want to call attention, just looking at my notes, back to something that uh, Judge Menard had mentioned um, probably about 10 plus minutes ago, which was the state's focus on tribal sovereignty and moving away from that. And then Harold very eloquently talked about, you know, basically looking through the lens of race and what it means to be an American. And I think kind of the conversations and what was shared coalesced to show that there was like a, you know, for me, but not for thee type of thing. And that's really troubling. I think that, you know, when you look at, when you trace back the history of tribal state relations, um, there's, there's very clearly well-documented evidence of the state of Maine looking to reduce the size, the authority, the sovereignty, the scope of the tribes. I, I don't know that you could deny that in good faith while citing to discernible evidence. And again, as a legal research and writing specialist, I come to, I come to this from, you know, what's the citation? What are the facts? I have yet to see anything that would disprove that. Um, you know, I, I think for me, what's concerning is that you have in, in the Proctor report with the testimony of Proctor, you have a very consequential uh, decision being made by the legislature and they're calling on this public educator who these are the keepers of knowledge in our communities i myself am the son of a high school former high school administrator and, and teacher and i have great respect for for educators um but that does not equate with somebody like dr prince here who is a historian and has the background and has looked at those documents they're just not the same thing um and when proctor comes in and basically says I'm looking specifically at page 23 as probably the best example that we read today. 
he's talking about the health of the native people because again his mandate keep in mind is to educate the legislature when they're talking about this law and he says i will skip briefly over the health uh issue because there are not any objective data in regard to health of indians to me that's kind of a casual statement by him and and it seems that nobody really challenged that but if you look at what he proceeds to say he talks about you know, the doctors are known. There are five doctors in Old Town and Callis. And he talks about how the state has made sure that the, you know, the students have had their tonsils removed and this and that. Um, it continues to be at the time that this testimony is given, the state's position that they're doing more for the Indians, quote, than was ever promised in the treaties. Proctor himself says it at least on two occasions that I could count today. Yet, when it comes to data that should be held in the hands of the state to which Proctor was given full access, when it comes to data that's that important about the health of these people, they have nothing. Yet they can tell you with certainty how many people are quarter blood, eighth blood, how many will be, can project it out to the year 2043. Heck, Donna, they can even tell you that the weeds uh, on the reservation were three feet tall. Oh. But they cannot <laughs> tell you, they cannot tell you what the health data is for this population of people who they're saying, you know. We, we have a certain responsibility towards and we're meeting all those response, all those obligations. So the reason I bring up that example is in the larger context of what, what Eric said earlier, which is you have, you asked the question about, you know, the Indian Claim Settlement Act, should it be abrogated? I think the position of everybody here is absolutely yes. I'll say my personal opinion is 100%. We've heard from the community, we've heard from Mainers, we've heard from tribal members, we've heard from everybody. And it seems to be a few people in the political pipeline that hold that effort up. And I think Chief Francis uh, quite eloquently predicted that this may be the last time we have an administration that really stands in the way on that issue. And I hope that to be the case. I don't speak for all millennials, but I will say as a younger person, um, I know from the people that I talk to on both sides of the aisle that there is no quarrel on this issue. I think we've seen that it's a, a bipartisan effort in the legislature now. And I think that it's time is is running out for the old guard, if you will, on issues like this. So I think when we consider the uh, land claim settlement and we talk about tribal sovereignty and the quasi-municipal status that was unfairly heaped upon the tribes at the last minute, kind of without much knowledge to the tribes when they, quote, agreed to this, I think that that needs to be looked at very closely. And I think what Harold and Eric have articulated here, this whole dichotomy of, you know, America's a melting pot, but not for the tribes. They're separate. Well, if they're separate, what's the reason for that? And the reason, invariably, and this is my opinion, is that's a sovereign entity. You're talking about people who, since time immemorial, have retained and always been sovereign. And I think that, you know, that that's where I'll end, because I think that that's really the beginning and the end of the analysis. Eric? And, and as Joe says, it's the beginning and the end of the analysis. It has been decided by the Supreme Court that they are sovereign nations. They, there is a qualification that the Supreme Court says on that. But even with that qualification, they are sovereign nations, and the state of Maine refuses to accept that. They say over and over again, every time the tribes come in and have, a, to have the conversation, say, oh, no nation within a nation. What that means is, no, you're not sovereign. And that's what the state of Maine tries to do is say, you're a municipality, you're not sovereign. That is antithetical to the history, the law, and quite frankly, 
than the morality of it. And can I just add really quick to that? You know, I think one thing that I know a lot of younger Americans and a lot of younger attorneys are, are quite comfortable with is like admitting that things need to change or someone got something wrong in the past. But it's not something that's just common to quote like younger people or younger politicians. I mean, you look at the history of this country and the separation of powers and a very deliberate, thoughtful system that works when we allow it to. And for example, the Supreme Court, while I know uh, everybody here, we have reference for the institutions of power, they would be the first to tell you those justices would be the first to say, in the past, our brothers and sisters on previous courts have got it wrong. You look at decisions uh, like Dred Scott, or you look at Korematsu, just absolute abrogations of human rights, of constitutional rights, and the Supreme Court has corrected itself. You look at the legislative process, and you have subsequent legislatures through time that basically will say the laws need to change. The will of the people needs to change. You want to talk about originalism or textualism, people like Antonin Scalia, who have a more conservative view. You look at Thomas Jefferson, who, who firmly believed, one of the drafters of the Constitution, that it was a document that needed to be preserved, but revised with each generation. And this is all a way of saying that what we have here coming from 1980 and 1979, they got it wrong. Congress, in its in its involvement, approved something that was half-baked. Um, I think that, you know, revisiting the land claim settlement is healthy. I think it's necessary. And I think if you look at papers like the one that was authored by Dr. Friedrichs, who appears alongside our piece in the recent Maine Law Review, there is a an overwhelming amount of evidence for an objective party to look at this and say, that was not an agreement that withstands scrutiny today under the law. It needs to be revisited. We have an obligation. All of the branches of government have an obligation not to stand in the way just out of tradition's sake, but to look at it and say, you know what, in, in line with things like Korematsu and Dred Scott, where we corrected something that was wrong, that we knew was wrong, I think we need to do that here. Agreed. Harold? Yeah, uh, I totally uh, respect my to uh, legal scholar colleagues here. Uh, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not uh, looking at um, history through a legal point of view, but I'm running into it all the time. One of the um, issues that uh, comes back to the Proctor Report is, again, this is in October 1942, almost one year into the war as far as the United States is concerned, uh, since December 1941. And uh, Proctor did not know, which surprised me, how many Penobscots were at that time as of this conference uh, in the armies, he says on page 26, the Penobscot tribe, I haven't got the figures. Well, if he had read, just read the newspaper at that time, he would have known there was a service flag hanging at Indian Island. And the service flag at that time hanging on Indian Island already had 23 stars on it. Uh, um, uh, and uh, eight had not yet been sewn onto it because the total number of Penobscot men in the army at that time was 31. And what strikes me is um, the fact that uh, he did not get those numbers in wartime when he's whining about the fact that the gardens don't look well kept um, and that they are not farming. And you start saying, you know, have you actually looked and wonder where everybody is because they were in the war industry? Uh, many were in Boston, they were in Portland, they're in Camden, uh, they're in Bath. And uh, before the time, of course, historically, they would be in the summertime earning money by selling baskets 
at places like uh, uh, Lincoln Beach, Lincoln uh, Lincolnville Beach, where the Shea the Shea family was, or Kennebunkport, uh, where um, uh, the Nicola family historically was, or the Sabatis family at Bailey Island, and they name it Bar Harbor, of course, where Donna's own forefathers and foremothers uh, used to camp during the summer. So there was the time of cultivation of the gardens, yes, but you weren't there because you were trying to make money by selling the baskets. But the more important thing is here, all this whining about um, Canadian Indians is completely bypassing the Jay Treaty. The Jay Treaty of 1790 gives free border crossing rights. And while the, the Canadians have stopped the, recognizing that law, the United States repeatedly had to accept the fact that that law was on the book, free border crossing rights uh, for um, Mi'kmaq and Maliseet coming into Maine. So to suddenly start saying these are Canadian Indians and you can't have intermarriage when you meet each other uh, in the blueberry fields of Washington County or the potato picking fields of Aroostook, that's absolutely insane. So it's a violation of the histor historicity of the Wabanaki Confederacy as a transnational, only as a result of the border dispute that was finally settled in 1842 in the Webster-Ashburton Treaty. Uh, there's a Jay Treaty continued as a result of that particular delineation. So the whole thing smacks of um, a mindset that is usually referred to as an hegemonic wild mindset that these people aren't aware really of their own ideological prejudices because as uh, Joe was just mentioning about these schools, these schools are repeating a certain kind of narrative that makes people see the world through a certain kind of lens and cannot imagine another one. Okay, I guess we're going to have to end there, Harold. Uh, time flies, doesn't it? <laughs> we, could, we could have gone another hour, I think. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, I'm your host, Donna Loring, and you've been listening to Webinaki Windows. I want to thank uh, Judge Eric Menner, Attorney Joe Gauss, Professor Harold Prince for being on the show today. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his CD, Dreamwalk. The engineers for our show are Jessica Lockhart of WMPG and John Mann of WERU. Tune in again next month for another Webinaki Windows. <laughs>